You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsor, Google. You know, Google is proud to sponsor Revision Path and championing excellence and diversity in the creative community. They believe that design is critical to building great products and experiences, and they're committed to fostering best-in-class results with efforts like material design, a unified system combining theory, resources, and tools to help you craft beautiful digital experiences, and Google Design. From producing original articles and videos to hosting creative and educational partnerships, their goal is to connect, support, and inspire designers and technologists. To learn more, please visit them at design.google. Now for this week's interview. We're talking with Brian Douglas, a developer advocate at GitHub. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. So my name is Brian Douglas. I'm a developer advocate at GitHub. And a lot of people want to know what a developer advocate is. And uh, my joke is I'm a developer that sends emails. Uh, <laughs> but what I'm really focused on at GitHub is uh, user adoption and growth uh, for spe- specific features, community engagement. So I sometimes I get really deep in the code, like 50% of my time is writing code. And the other 50% of the time is actually engaged in the community based on the code I wrote. Interesting. And I, w- I mean... I was curious as to why a company like GitHub would need a developer advocate considering a lot of developers are kind of already using GitHub, but it sounds like that engagement part is really the key thing with what you do. It is. I joined GitHub about 18, 19 months ago uh, in 2018. And so I've been here, it feels like forever because I've seen so many different things change, including like the acquisition of Microsoft. And they had never had a proper developer advocate. So we've had like people who branded the title on LinkedIn. But as far as like developer relations team, we haven't had one until I joined. And it was really for focusing specifically on strategic features and adoption uh, with the things. Because like a lot of companies, a lot of small companies, including GitHub, like the employees become advocates. So I, I imagine for a lot of the companies that we love and we hear from some of the faces of those companies, they are regular engineers, regular designers, or regular PMs, and just happen to love the product they're talking about. And that's what GitHub had a lot of. Um, there's a lot of engineers that love talking about our product. And then, so I came in to specifically focus on strategic things, stuff that maybe people weren't giving enough love to. So uh, within my first year at GitHub, my focus was the GitHub API and interactions with that. And like GitHub's been around for 11 years, and the API's been around for 11 years, but the adoption between the API and GitHub.com is like completely different and different as in like not a lot of people are building on the API, but a ton of people using github.com. So my, my focus last year was really engaging the community and teaching them best practice of how to use the API, why you would use the API, how to build integrations on our marketplace uh, to eventually get like, if you wanted to build like a company and make money off of that, like sort of get people engaged hmm. in that sort of way. What attracted you to GitHub? Um, well, that's simple. Uh, the paycheck is really what attracted me to GitHub. <laughs> So, but to be honest, Keep like it real, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've I've been using GitHub for as long as I've been writing code. So 2013 is when I first created my GitHub account and started deciding I wanted to learn how to code. And so I've had an account since then. But my my journey into programming is a, a long winding journey. It's out there on the internet uh, on co- the second episode of Code Newbies. Um, if anybody's familiar with that podcast, oh uh, yeah, we've had Sarah on the show too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Getting to GitHub was at the point where I was working at a startup in San Francisco and early, early employee at the startup. And I really love my job. And that's where I sort of learned how to be a developer advocate at that job. And I spoke at GitHub Universe, which is the premier GitHub conference, actually the month that they reached out to me. So I spoke at GitHub Universe. One of the senior directors at GitHub, I actually knew through another podcast I do. And he reached out and said, hey, you know, what are you doing? I see you're doing a lot of talks, talking about specifically GraphQL is what I was talking about. Uh, so they started the interview process basically just after that. Had like a, a nice little chat at GitHub's office and went through the process to originally interview as an engineer because I at my I did a lot of writing code at my last job and transitioned to a developer advocate at my last job and was sort of jonesing to get back in the writing code full time, 100%. But then GitHub 
sort of gave me like a, a switcheroo and said, hey, we know you've been interviewing for this engineering role, but we're also trying to build a developer relations team. Would you like to be the first person on that team? So oh, wow. that's what got me here. And I, I joked about the paycheck, like I'm a developer by trade and I get paid as a developer, a senior developer at GitHub. But my focus is not 100% writing code. It's focusing on how to how to craft that story and get people engaged uh, in certain features. What has been kind of your biggest challenge, though, with with this role? Because it sounds like what you said you kind of started the team in a way. Well, but what's been your biggest challenge? Yeah, yeah. I'd, and I, I want to say I started my, like my second coworker who joined a month after me. Uh, we joined literally within a month of each other. He's based in Europe. So we both like initially like kicked off this team at GitHub. But honestly, like the challenge. So like personally, the challenge is always trying to convince people that you know what you're talking about. Credibility is like a big thing as a developer advocate because you could easily reside like back into just sending emails, showing up at conferences, giving uh, your sort of your best talk over and over again, and then sort of this coasting. Because developer advocacy and developer relations, though it's been around for a long time, a lot of people don't really get it. And a lot of people don't understand like how to get value out of it. So like some advocates could go from one company to the other company writing the same blog post over and over again mm. and basically kill it. Because if if you know how to talk to developers and you know how to reach them in the space that they're they're at, you could do it at any company and do well. So my personal challenge has always been trying to always make sure I stay grounded, make sure I stay up to speed, on whatever the latest and greatest technology is and also keep my developer skill set up. But yeah, but working wise, it's always trying to keep ahead of what we're shipping. So uh, we happen to be shipping a feature really soon. Uh, we're sitting at, we're shipping a refresh to one of our features and we got a lot of information and feedback from our beta, like the, the cycle. But from that feedback, we ended up adjusting how we interact with the feature and basically improving that story uh, through this beta program. And my my last week has been trying to figure out how to leverage this project and then also build a story to share about this. So I have to keep tabs on all the engineering teams that are associated with my day job and make sure that I know exactly what they're talking about. Make sure that they, if they're writing, if the documentation is getting written or if their API or interactions are getting written, like make sure that anybody who claims to be a developer can you leverage this. Because uh, like some of the, the worst thing you do, you can do as a developer-focused company is assume that people know what you're talking about. So I try to sort of break those those barriers in between. Developers know how to write code, but they don't know how to use your feature. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably something wrong with your feature. Uh, so I, we try to provide feedback with on that that sense. I remember when I started at Glitch. Uh, actually, it was Fog Creek Software back then. I started, and in my first week, they took they had me at a developer conference and. It was really different from design conferences that I went to because design conferences, everyone is very, um, I guess, open and talkative. The the talks tend to be really super creative. There's always all these great questions. And then I'm in this developer conference. It was a one-day conference. It was uh, DevRelCon in London. It was okay. my first time in London. So it's like, first week on the job. First first time in a different country at a, a completely different type of event that I've never been to before. It was it was a lot. But I remember everyone would give their talks and then that was it. They would talk and they would walk off stage. No time for questions, anything. They just, all right, that's my talk. Boom. Next talk. Right after that. And I remember trying to just talk to people and just learn what it is that is important to developers because I know it's important to designers. I don't know how much that really differs. There's something that you said about, you know, being able to to talk to developers, like how to talk to developers. What exactly does that entail? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm actually planning on being at DevRelCon London, and Dev- I was just spoke at DevRelCon uh, SF. Uh-huh. And like communicating developers is sometimes it can be challenging, and sometimes it doesn't really have to be as challenging. So. Um, you, you talk about like developers getting on stage and then giving a talk and then walking off. Uh, I personally, I prefer not to have answer questions from stage at developer conferences specifically for the reason. And I'm not sure if this uh, if DevRelCon has the same sort of um, uh, stance. Well, actually, they do because I, I was on the organizing committee actually for the DevRelCon SF. Mm. And sometimes you can get some people who ask questions who are not really trying to ask a question that's trying to flex. Yeah. And um, so like they're asking a question about like, hey, have you heard about this thing? Oh, you haven't? Well, let me take two minutes and then tell you exactly why your talk was invalid Mm. and like that sort of thing. 
And like I come, so my background is I did sales right outside of college. I got a finance degree during the worst time during the, the market crash in 08, 07. And then took a sales job because that was the best way I could make money and sort of move out of the, move out of my mom's house. And during that time, I learned how to code. So like I had four years of like sales and sales admin experience and also had like this experience of like communicating and networking. And then so I took an engineering job and like my path into engineering was writing a blog post. Uh, I was writing two to three blog posts like uh, a week, basically on how I was learning the stuff I was learning at the time. So I was had no CS background, no engineering background, but I was learning from this free mm -hmm. materials on the internet. So my communication skills, like written wise, I learned as I was learning. And then my communication skills, like on stage, I learned because I had a goal of doing way more public speaking because I found that a lot of the talks that I went to, like the majority of them, you could just read the blog post that they wrote associated with the talk and you get all that information. So then you sit there and you're just like waiting for the, like the punchline or waiting for like the link to go and do this on your own. Uh -huh. So the majority of like developers at developer conferences have their laptops open and they're working the entire time. Yeah. So like one of my goals when I get up on stage is like number one, if I can get everybody to close their laptops within the, within the first five minutes, then I know I've got them. So usually all my talks tend to start off with some random story or some sort of like something, a story that I'm going to key into what I'm talking about technically. I usually bring a story. So I, I bring this example and I went to a GraphQL conference a couple years ago and every single talk on stage had like a reference to Harry Potter or I think Game of Thrones. Mm. And I think that's like really leaning into the existing culture, the monoculture that we have in tech that's been around for the longest time, which is like no, no knock against anybody who likes Game of Thrones or Harry Potter because I like Game of Thrones just like the next person. But also that's literally leaning into like the nerdy, the white culture, despite that like, you know, uh, black and brown people do like Game of Thrones. But what I was getting at is that if you sit in a talk and like the the punchline or the reason I'm going to close my laptop is because you mentioned Harry Potter, then maybe try harder because the last person did that. So my approach to that in that conference, that same conference that I got like super annoyed on watching all these same talks about the same thing with the same examples. My talk was about hip hop. And I do this intentionally because I wanted to bring part of my brand to the talk. So people... One, they're closed their, closed their laptops because they're really confused on what I'm talking about and why I'm even mentioning Tupac and Grandmaster Flash within the first like 20 slides. Mm -hmm. And then two, they're like waiting for me to talk about something that like the actual subject matter. So like the first 20 slides is going to be, I won't introduce myself. I also won't introduce my topic. What I'll do is introduce you some sort of concept. And mm -hmm. there's like a quote from Stan Lee, which is, um, imagine every issue is someone's first issue. So if you're going to mention Harry Potter, like explain to me what why what context Harry Potter brings for you to bring this up. Like there's if some sort of analogy or something I could take away to remember this. Otherwise, I might as well just go read your blog post. So just like give me the last slide and then I can go to the next talk. So uh, going back to the talk that I was explaining. So I explained GraphQL being this, this interface of how you interact with APIs. A lot of people compare it to REST. And there were a lot of conversations about REST being dead and like REST APIs not being like the best way to do things anymore. And I had a counterpoint, which is REST is not dead. And REST is actually just being sampled by GraphQL. So my going back to the hip hop example, I talked about Disco and I talked about The Get Down, which is a Netflix show. Yeah. A show that I was, I was really, really enjoying and then it got canceled. Uh, so I love giving this talk in Silicon Valley when there's Netflix employees so I can give them like a little nudge and say, hey, why'd you kill my show? <laughs> um, but what I learned from that show is that like at Grandmaster Flash, it was like these, these four or five kids that started up this hip hop group and they didn't know what it was called. They just knew that it was this new type of music and they were taking disco beats and, and they were basically sampling them and making hip hop. And that same sort of like abstraction that you do is the same sort of abstraction that happened like with Tupac. So like I, I talk about Grandmaster Flash and the message, which is like my brother's doing fast. So my mother's TV says he watched too much. It's just not healthy. Like a lot of people know that verse, but people know the the hook. Yeah. And the hook is don't push me because I'm close to the edge. So, yeah. So like Tupac took that song and he made ain't nothing but a gangster's party. So like the underlying beat came from that song. Uh, and that song was like the pinnacle point of when hip hop became less about partying and more about rapping about your life. Mm -hmm. And then that exactly what gangster rap was. And that's what Tupac made a career on, on top of. Well, a short-lived career, but he his rise came through gangster rap. And so my my analogy is like Tupac got, he, he got shot um, in 1996. And in 1996 is the same year that REST APIs came. 
Um, so there was like this, um, oh. uh, and I just like just from Googling and Wikipedia, I found out like the same day, de- the same year that uh, I forgot the guy, but he was at a university of Minnesota. He, he gave the spec out around rest APIs and then how this is like going to be the best way to interface with, with your database. So then the, so I, I take this analogy 10 years later, GitHub, um, because at, at the time I gave this talk, GitHub was my employer. He's still, still my employer. They decided to try out GraphQL the next year. So the next year after Tupac got shot, then you have like Puff Daddy taking that same sort of essence of sampling, disco and all the like Shaka Khan and all the stuff that was happening in the 80s, like the next wave of disco and R&B. And he built an entire brand on sampling beats and music again. And like that, it's all cyclical. So GraphQL, you could actually sample your REST API with GraphQL. And so, yeah, so I've kind of meandered through like this ex- explanation. There's a talk out there when I actually go will, really deep in the hip hop culture and teach all my white tech bros in the audience about hip hop culture and just sort of have them walk away sort of like, oh, cool. Now I, I feel like I'm super woke because now I know about Tupac and Grandmaster Flash. <laughs> but I do that intentionally because because I could literally sit and talk about GraphQL for a hundred slides for 40 minutes and everybody would be okay. And everybody would be like, okay, another talk about GraphQL. Let me just pull up my laptop. Let me get some work done while I'm listening and looking up blog posts. Uh, but instead I try to sell people on the experience because most people go to conferences to be entertained to, to network. So if you can walk away from my talk and one, know who I am, know what company I work for and also like walk away with some extra information, then I, I feel like I've sort of one as a developer advocate. That's a really good tactic. I like that. I'm interested in that part that you said about uh, why people probably don't ask questions from the stage because they're trying to trip you up. Because that's a very common thing. In <laughs> Now that I'm thinking about it, it's very common in design conferences where someone will, they don't have a question. They just want to pontificate for a few minutes. And even yeah. at events that I've been in, I make sure to say, like, if you got a question, ask a question. If you don't have a question, we're going to shut you down and move on to the next thing. So, so that kind of makes sense. Yeah. It, it's the worst when they're like, Oh, I got two questions, you know, and I'm giving right, right. like, well, you and the, and the first question is some long diatribe statement. And then the second question is like super short. And it's like, why don't you ask the second one first? Yeah. 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 So yeah, I, I tend to <laughs> say, Hey, if you got a question, come find me, like walk up to the stage, I'll be here standing here. And I tend to have a, a, a pretty, a pretty good conversation after the fact. Mm-hmm. And then because more, more than likely, like most people like, unless they're, I had someone actually, so I gave a talk and mentioned Kanye West in Chicago. And I had mentioned, like, made, like, a mention of, like, 50 Cent. Like, people were, like, were hard, like, diehard 50 Cent fans. And, like, they had, like, oh, well, you know, 50 actually sold this million albums. Because I had, like, a, some sort of, like, statistic in my my talk. Um, so, like, those are the, I'll, I'll take that from the stage. Yeah, cool. You can correct me about how many albums 50 sold. But um, I'm not going to talk about, like, you know, well, REST APIs, they were invented for this reason and blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, that's that's cool, but let's let's just let's write a blog post about that, and I'll I'll, I'll give you like a clap on Medium. <laughs> so you mentioned that with your work that you're doing at GitHub, it's like fifty percent code and fifty percent kind of engagement around that code. How do you approach new projects at GitHub? Yeah, yeah. So like I we've we've got a we've got a product roadmap, and we've got an idea of like where we're going to be in like six months, a year, five years. So as a developer relations, and I think this is kind of similar to developer relations in multiple companies, like you have a broad statement of like grow users or get more user adoption or signups. And like, it's going to be a very broad, like OKR or objective key result yeah. that you sort of our KPI, whatever you want to call them at your company. So what I usually just try to do is look at the stuff that's out there and that we have. And what I did last year is try to Focus on places where there was like problematic things or maybe there was a lot of user drop off. So like trying to figure out like why are no, why is nobody using the API on GitHub? So and in what my experience using Git, GitHub's API is the fact that if you go to developer.github.com now, it's better nowadays, but like a year, two years ago, it was nothing but reference material. So the best way for me to learn how to use GitHub API was ask the developer sitting next to me. Hmm. Uh, and that's what I literally did for a good five years as I was building stuff with GitHub's API. So we spent a lot of focus on trying to figure out, like, ask questions and interview uh, some of our customers or just ask our friends and figure out, OK, well, you know, there's this problem with the API, this problem with the API, or I don't know how to do X. And then on the other hand, we'd also get a lot of people like tweet me or just like email or talk to me like in person and be like, hey, I would like to see this feature on GitHub. So 
with getting that sort of response and feedback, we started crafting this like uh, workshop that we were doing at, at conferences and and also at the GitHub's uh, office in San Francisco, as well as in New York. We did one in New York as well. And we called them a craft work, which was an opportunity for people to learn how to use GitHub's API. So we take like somebody's like super simple like user features or super interaction interactions with GitHub API. And we try to show people how easy it is to get like a one-click install or interactions with GitHub's API. And we leveraged, um, we went a couple iterations and we found that like just getting set up to use GitHub API took 45 minutes the first time we did it. We had to pick a language. So we, we picked JavaScript because we figured at, this, at the moment in time, JavaScript is something that you can Google pretty easily and find intro material on. So we chose JavaScript despite the fact that not everybody in the room knew JavaScript. So that was another hurdle. That was a hurdle for some people. And then we also had to choose like different JavaScript libraries. So we had to look at like node packages and be like, okay, this NPM install this and don't pay attention to everything else. And mind you, the whole time we're trying to approach teaching people GitHub's API, but we had to spend 45 minutes on like just the getting set, getting set up and um, started. Mm. And then not to mention like you had to work about authentication. So like you got to have a GitHub account, which I think nowadays is not that big of a ask like a lot of people either they're like been tinkering or maybe tried at one time or already using it at work so but then you got to take your github account and authenticate it with their api so then you have to create a token then you have to know what jwts are and like there's all this process of like learning all the stuff that's not interacting with github's feature set and github's api so what we did was we eventually and you mentioned glitch and you work at glitch like we eventually got to the point where like let's just remove all the stuff all this other things we don't want to talk about and just create a, a glitch um, project and remix it. So the first step that we have now in like this craft work is now this click the glitch remix. And then now let's get started with interacting with the API. So here's now the reference material. Here's the feature set. And no one has to know about like authentication. And like this is a way as developer relations, like we know our limitations. Like I can clone GitHub's repo today. Uh, actually, I have GitHub's repo on my laptop. I, I can set up features and then go pitch it to engineering teams and say, hey, I wrote all this code to fix this problem. It took me six months, but can you please merge this in? And then I got to convince a product manager that this makes sense because I, I need to give a 45-minute workshop on this. And like, that's challenging. But when I present the, when I do the reverse and like, hey, we had to use Glitch to like uh, make this a little easier. And like, instead of making 45 minutes, it's 10 minutes. So with that feedback, we were able to go back to the engineering team and say, Hey, if we're going to use glitch for this, this workshop, how do we make this better? So with the making it better. So now it's like, instead of 10 minutes is actually 30 seconds. Cause we've sort of prepackaged all the YAML and all these sort of flags that you need to sort of answer when you first interact with a GitHub's API, we prepared it in a way that we could actually make this like a simplistic like interaction. And, uh, this is like something that I learned from my previous employer, which I haven't mentioned yet, which was um, a company called Netlify. And their whole thing is you want to deploy your app as easy as possible to the web. So back in the day, like we had GeoCities and we could just like sign up with an account and start filling out information. And then you have like WordPress where if you go to WordPress.com, you can set up a WordPress site super easy. But when it came to developing sites on the web and JavaScript and HTML and like modern frameworks, there's always a, it's a little harder to figure out like, okay, well, I'm using node or react or angular like i've got to use these features and these flags to make sure it gets shipped on aws but with netlify what they did is they just took your static build which if um, you listeners that they're more likely probably familiar with like bundling javascript and webpack and like taking your dynamically rendered application and put it into a static form so netlify saw this change and were deploying it pretty easily to the point where one of our focuses is at the time I was an engineer was how do you make that onboarding path instead of 10 minutes, make it 60 seconds. So Netlify has prides itself now and today because now it's so easy that you can just click a button and have a site up. And that's sort of those things that I sort of brought over. The ideas that I brought over to, to GitHub, not just myself, but as we had uh, conversations with the team, like how do we make this an easier process so we don't get user drop, drop off and you get user adoption instead. So in a nutshell, that's like how I approach projects is trying to make the the user experience better. Hmm. I think people like Glitch will definitely be excited to hear that folks at GitHub are using uh, Glitch in that way. That's really dope to hear. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a great project, and like if you if you are trying to yeah imagine like the world we live in today is like everything's like microwaves, like you can get something frozen or you can get like caviar to like ship it to your house. 
Like, imagine if you had to, like, before you wanted to make a meal, you had to pick out, like, what knife. Not even, like, what knife you want. Like, what sandstone do you want to use to sharpen your knife? Because you're going to cut bell peppers. And which knife is going to be the best for bell peppers? Mm -hmm. And then find out, like, what pot fits in, like, holds enough quarts or liters of water. And, like, and that's, like, the world we live in as developers. Like, you have to make all these decisions to the point where you're pretty much just done. Like, either you give up or you, you power through and you become an expert. And I think what the world that we're we're moving into as developers is, and I think the same thing in design is that we're moving towards simplicity. So there's no reason to be like a quote unquote full stack engineer. Uh, you could just be good at what you're good at and then sort of pull in open source projects or pull in uh, companies to sort of do everything you don't want to do. Makes sense. I got you. So I definitely want to go more into your career in tech, but I'm curious to kind of know a little bit about you know, you from the beginning, you just briefly alluded to you kind of having this degree in finance. So let's let's go back. Where did you where did you grow up? And was tech kind of a big part of your childhood growing up? Yeah. So so I grew up in Florida, uh, Tampa, Florida. So specifically outside of Florida, if anybody's sitting there and like, hey, I'm going to shout my city. So I grew up in Palm Harbor, Florida, which is like two cities outside of Tampa. So basically suburbs, single parent household. Uh, saw my dad pretty much like every other weekend for a while until he got busy. And then I would see him every weekend like in a year. But yeah, both my parents were pretty much in my life. But I bring that up because I, whenever I went to my dad's house, he had a computer in the house. Mm-hmm. So I do have a twin brother too as well. So we grew up pretty close. And despite me actually working as an engineer in tech, he was way more technical than I was. So growing up, like we would like build computers through like saving money and like trying to find out how to get like the cheapest parts uh, on the internet. So I like, always grew up like tinkering with computers, but never like thinking that was just going to be a career path. I know like my counterparts, like my white coworkers who grew up with like a computer to house, they knew they were going to be engineers or computer engineers or whatnot. Like for whatever reason growing up that like that was not an option for me. So I ended up getting scholarships for college and my college is pretty much 100% paid for. So my thought was because I never had money, I'd go ahead and I get a, a, a career in finance by taking uh, taking that sort of uh, degree path. And so I ended up getting a finance degree at the University of South Florida and graduated 2008. I ended up graduating a, graduating a semester late because my scholarship, though, was 100% paid for. You could only, it was, it's called Bright Futures. So the state lottery sets aside some money for kids to, kids who can't afford it to go to college. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a couple other states do something very similar. And yeah, we do the like the hope scholarship yeah, yeah, hope. in Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I had. And so you could only take so many credits in a year. So even though I was like basically killing it in school and like making sure I was like I was working almost full time the entire time I was in school as well as going to college and living at home. So I had to like extend my college semester one more or college career one more semester because you couldn't take as many classes in a year. You had like a, a cap on how many classes you could take, what I'm getting at. So in that semester I ended up getting a Mac. And, uh, I, I took, I took like three classes, it was like golf. I forgot what it was called, like strategic investments. Cause I was, that, that was like the career path I was heading for uh-huh. and then professional selling. Huh. And like out of my entire four years of college, like that was, like, that was my best semester ever. Cause I learned so much, uh, in that one semester, like one, I learned how to do presentations and stand up in front of people and sell something. And that's literally what I'm doing every day though. I'm not, <laughs> I don't have that quota as a salesperson. I'm convincing people like, GitHub X or GitHub feature Y is the reason why you should use GitHub. It's a transferable skill. Yeah. Yeah. And then like the, my finance degree and also that strategic investment thing, that course, like I use that though. I never actually had a finance job. I've used that information like to this day. So like I'm, I'm, I'm rich by no means. Like I'm not even close to being rich, but like I've had a 401k and an IRA since like I graduated Mm -hmm. like college. So I'm pretty proud about that because like I know when I hit, you know, whatever age that I want to work, like I can go ahead and just take a break. So I'm pretty happy that I have that in like in my life and I I got that skill set. Yeah. But I could not get a job for the life of me. And like that's another thing like about college. I don't know. I'm sure this has come up uh, quite a bit times uh, on this podcast. But as like black people, one, like I did, I never knew that that engineering or computer science was a path for me, despite that I had a computer in my house pretty much since like the internet was a pretty common thing in the 90s. And the other thing is like networking. Like the reason you go to college is really for your network. It's not for wh- what you learn. And that's why the bigger schools 
always have like the best a candidate. So like like Microsoft will definitely go to Stanford, but like Morehouse, like they're probably not in Morehouse. Yeah. So like and like that's not a knock on Microsoft or the knock on HBCUs, but like the fact that like the network is not there, uh, is it's really sad. So what I was getting at is like when I got when I graduated college with a finance degree, like I didn't have a network. And what I found out really quickly is that everybody who I went to school with and I interned with, they were all getting jobs based on like their dad's golf buddy or their their dad's financial planner and all this other stuff. And like I was like, man, I mean, my mom doesn't have a financial planner. Like, what am I going to do? Yeah. So I ended up just taking a, a sales job at a tech company. It's a tech wholesaler in, in Florida called Tech Data and did like basic level sales admin stuff and and sort of grew up in the ranks where I got a sales job for the first time with no sales sales experience. I just had that one course I took. And then I read a, a lot of books. And then I got I pr- got promoted within a year. I got promoted twice to IT consultant, which is kind of like principal. Like we have the idea of like principal engineer. I was like senior, senior sales. And it was just like because I paid attention and I paid attention to like networking. And I paid attention on like like what were the trends in, like what was happening mm-hmm. in like the tech world. Because uh, I, I worked... I, I was a avid like podcast listener and I watched a lot of tech TV and read a lot of blog posts. So like I just kind of was informed that I grew myself into the point where I had a career in sales. But then once I got to that point, I kind of figured out I didn't want to actually do that. And uh, at that time, I was expecting my first kid uh, who's now five years old. Uh, actually, he'll be six years old in a couple of weeks. Wow. And um, yeah, and because I was expecting a kid, my next step in sales, I had to like make a decision. Like either I had to go to management or I had to go to the field and I didn't want to do field sales cause I didn't want to be traveling. I was kind of not really into like traveling all the time, being away from home. And I didn't really care about what I was selling. So management wasn't really an option for me cause I can't really, and I can't inspire people to sell stuff that I don't care about. Like I can inspire people to buy stuff, but I can't inspire other salespeople to do a job that I didn't really care about. So I ended up finding at while my son was, when my son was born, he was born like 10 weeks, 11 weeks early. So because of that, we had to travel back and forth to the hospital because he was literally in the hospital for 11 weeks. And during that time, my wife and I, because my son was so premature, we were looking for like a church to go to just some sort of like hope and some sort of like reason to like have some hope uh, about our situation. Yeah. And I had this idea of, building because I was Googling churches in Tampa because uh, my son was in a right next to Raymond Jane State. I'm like right in the middle of Tampa and trying to find churches like in that area because I wasn't as familiar like downtown Tampa. Could not find anything on Google. And this is like, mind you, like 2013. Could not Google for the life of me like church in Tampa. Tell me what churches are there. What kind of church is it? Like, are they crazy? Are they normal? Like, <laughs> what is it? And could not get that information. So I, I had an idea of building an app called Choich which is C-H-U-Y-C-H. Nice. And my, my tagline was, we put the Y in church. <laughs> but we basically, it was Yelp for churches. That was like, that's like the punchline. I was, I was just thinking that. It sounds like Yelp for churches. Yeah, so I ended up learning how to code to build this app because I had just had like this, this got this like inspiration and passion to like figure out how to do this thing because I felt like this is an idea that could be useful for people who want to find a church or move or like churches like, there's a... um. I saw a tweet of someone about talking about the Christian church and he like made like a broad statement about church and how bad it is. And like each church is different and like each church believes in different things. Like the Bible belt, like they believe all those things. And then like in the West coast and California, the churches are way different. Yeah. And I was just trying to figure out like as a person who like enjoys church and community, but doesn't enjoy all the, the stigma of Christianity uh, specifically because that's what I was looking for. Uh, I was just trying to find out like, hey, I just want to know if this church is crazy or this church has a kids program or this church has music or whatever. And like that information did not like there are sites now and apps that exist in this manner. But at the time, they didn't exist. So anyway, I, I learned how to code and decided I wanted to like build this little side project app and like quit my job eventually. And then as I was like planning on like a business strategy, mind you, I actually forgot to mention I was actually getting my MBA at the same time that all this was happening. So my goal was finish my MBA, start this little project as a, a company and quit my job and like be happy for the rest of my life. Turns out like doing stuff with church and putting information on the internet is like challenging because mm-hmm. like churches were backwards and sensitive about reviews because like I want to have like reviews as part of the platform. But then I found out that people were getting paid to write code full time. And like I mentioned, I had a computer. I didn't realize computer science was a thing. 
had a, I went through the entire four years of college not knowing that I could just write code because I always thought it was like you you had to know how to write code for years to, to do anything. That's like my assumption, and they had to be like like part genius. <laughs> and once I discovered I could build an app with writing code, and then I discovered that people were making as much as I was making as a salesperson writing code as a junior engineer. That I was like, ah, oh, I'm just gonna do this full time. Like. I don't mind tinkering and Googling and being on a computer all my, like all day. So I ended up getting a job out in Orlando. And yeah, that's pretty much, that's the story. Got a job full time and then moved to California for another job. And uh, you also spent some time at Block. Uh, and I'm curious about this because you mentioned the finance degree, you mentioned MBA, uh, but then you went to Block for an apprenticeship. Why did you choose that over, say, another kind of long-term education program? Yeah. So I, I considered it a lot. Um, so I was getting my MBA and then as I was getting my MBA, so like my first semester, we had to write like a little, our first dissertation on companies yeah. and like how companies sort of started. It was like, I forgot what class it was, but um, I ended up writing on Google and I wrote on Google because I was reading the book Into the Plex. I read that entire book and found out that like Google started from one idea, which is like making search better. And they took one problem and then I found like I was... I think at the time, Social Network, that that um that movie had already been out a couple years and found out how Facebook was started by this one idea of like sharing pictures of people in your college. Mm-hmm. My thought was like, oh, if you just have one way, one thing to make it better, like you don't have to go down the corner or go to the mall and like get office space and set up shop as a business. Like if you have a business idea, you don't your your brick and mortar store is actually it could be your house online and the Internet. So like it kind of like shifted my my worldview of like businesses and as I was getting my MBA like start a business that doesn't require me actually being like in a storefront and so around that time like what we think of boot camps today they had just got started like literally that year and I just discovered that and I also was considering going back to like community college learning how to code from there and like doing it part time and because I had a, a new kid and how traumatic our the birth birth was and everything being eleven weeks early my wife ended up. Quitting her job, not going back to work. Mm. So we ended up being a, a single family income with a brand new kid and medical bills. Wow. So like a lot of options is kind of were not available to me. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. couldn't quit. I couldn't quit work. Uh, I couldn't like go get up and move to like Chicago or San Francisco or New York and go learn for like six months or twelve weeks or whatever it was at the time. So my options were super limited to either just keep learning on my own. And then hopefully in two years, I'll be skilled enough to go get a job or go start a business or whatever it is, or do like a program. And like at the time, boot camps, they were using the term boot camps pretty loosely. Um, like dev boot camp was around, like no longer around today, but they had started. And then the other ones were like, they like MOOCs, like the massively online open courses. Um, so like that, I don't know if it wasn't Coursera. There was like an Udacity, I think might've just started. Mm-hmm. So like that was an option. But knowing the way I learn, I have to learn hands-on. I have to watch YouTube videos. I've got to like see it in action, and then I'll learn. I'm I'm a avid music player, so I've, I've learned like a ton of instruments by just watching YouTube videos. And so knowing that I could like learn how to play drums by watching someone's over-the-shot camera, over-the-shoulder camera playing drums, mm-hmm. like I kind of need to see someone do it, and then I could do it. So with Block, though they weren't calling themselves a boot camp, they were calling themselves like an online mentorship program. The thing that sold me on that was the fact that. It was 12 weeks, but the 12 weeks was with you and one other professional uh, that you talked to once a week. So rather than sit in a classroom and take notes the entire time, just hoping that you can like, they'll stop talking so you can write code. Instead, I was given tasks every week and I would write, I'd figure out how to do those tasks, write code, and then meet with that mentor. Actually, I was meeting twice a week, actually. And I would meet him uh, the next, for our next meeting, okay, I got that done, what's next? And he was able to push me and I was able to push him to push me. Uh, and that's like, for me, that was like the best way for me to learn. Mm-hmm. It's just, just continue to push, continue to try things out and try like stuff that was harder the entire time. So I went 12 weeks of learning and I built this, um, that church app that I, I mentioned. Yeah, I built this while I was in the program. So I had the idea before I went in the program. I tried building it on my own like a month before I joined Block and failed miserably. Could not like for the life of me, figure out how to like run a server and get it deployed to production. So like, I just kept hitting my head against things. So because I had like an actual idea and something to do, going to the program was like a perfect fit for me. Uh, and I, I'm not sure. Um, I wouldn't say today that like Block and other programs are like perfect for everybody. I think you should try things out. You should ask a lot of questions before you actually decide to do things. Like at the time, it was it was five thousand dollars. 
And that was like $5,000 that I really didn't have. Yeah. But I figured it out. So my goal was like, I'm going to build this church site and I'm going to know how to code before this is over. Uh, or else like, I'm not wasting money. And like the, the summer before all this, everything happened. Like I tried building an app. I had the thought because I had an Android phone. I had the thought to go ahead and try to learn how to do Java and Android programming. And I bought the book and I never read it. And because I, I already tried once, like my goal was basically not try something and then like be like 10 years from now and be like, hey, that one time I tried to learn how to code, that was awesome. But I wish I would have tried harder or I wish I would have kept with it. And I didn't want to look back and be like, have this like what ifs. So my goal was like, what if I could actually do this and I could actually be successful the entire time? But to your, I didn't really answer your original question. Like the reason I chose Block as, out of everything else is because there wasn't a lot of other options. And I mean, like there were only, <laughs> yeah. That's wow. I mean, you did answer the question, but to, to know that it came yeah. from all that is, I mean, but it's funny you mentioned that because a lot of people kind of, you know, look down on boot camps for, some of the reasons that you mentioned, they're super expensive. There may or may not be this guarantee of work afterwards and things like that. Um, but they can be a good sort of, I guess, accelerator yeah. into the industry and in that you're learning skills that are being used right now. And at least with some of these boot camps, they at least have relationships with companies. So there is sort of a greater chance of you getting employed from going through a boot camp as opposed to maybe doing a four well four years versus 12 weeks but doing like a four-year course load and then trying to go out there and find a job off the strength of your resume or your network or something it's a it's a bit of a gamble yeah yeah and i think it really comes down to like how how into this are you yeah so if if you're gonna sign up for something like this and you're gonna say i'm gonna learn how to code like how much are you willing so i i, I did mention but i was basically sleeping like three or four hours a night this entire 12 weeks because uh, mainly like I had a new baby, so I, I needed to be a father for the first time. So I wasn't going to try to like sideswipe my, my wife and say like, um, oh, I don't want to be a dad for at least the first like three months of my son's life because <laughs> I'm going to do this thing. So I, I still had to wake up and like do dad duty and feed my son yeah. and like make sure he was sleeping and my wife had enough rest. So that way when I'm at work, she's on she's on full time mom duty. So like I did that. So like I was super, super into learning and it's a well super super of like getting my my life skills and like everything else out of the way but like i, I got really disenfranchised on some of the boot camp students that i was so i i did a bit of a stint of a two years of mentoring at block two as well yeah and i feel like when boot camps first came out like people were super like passionate about learning how to code and like they're coming from like starbucks baristas and like they were switching careers like midstream and like they were they were looking to get something out of this and like they didn't mind putting the work and i think boot camps had to evolved and I, a lot of them have evolved into like what they are today and some of them haven't survived and i think it's because the like what i went to community college my first two years uh, of school of college it was mainly because i i didn't really have everything together i didn't have the scts together and everything like that uh, so i wish hindsight i would have actually got that together but like community college is like a place for people to sort of find themselves and like figure out like you know what they're going to do next in their lives so they take like general studies and i feel like boot camps have got to that point where there's a lot more high school grads or early 20s people uh, joining boot camps as like, I heard you can get a job out of this and I heard there's demand for jobs. So I'm just going to go, I'm going to get the basic level C of my code base. And then hopefully based on like half, half doing everything, I'm going to get something out of this. And like, I, I don't think you can do a boot camp and only half do everything. I think you have to like excel and give yeah. like that, that quote unquote 110% to actually get something out of it. Otherwise, you might as well go to a four-year school. Yeah. Uh, because if you do four years, eventually you're gonna something's gonna stick, and you're gonna have some sort of skill set. But like, if you're trying to get skills in a short amount of time, like you got to put the time into it. You can't just like show up and hear the lecture and then go home and like go hang out with your friends and go like yeah. backpack in Tahoe. I've been curious about that kind of changing demographic of boot camps because General Assembly, which I guess in a way we can sort of call that a boot camp, I feel like they've been responsible for a large amount of UX designers kind of coming into the field. Like because of them, there are so many UX designers out there and they go through this program and it's very simple. And I'm wondering, well, I, actually, I'm not wondering. I know this. I know there are people that get into it and they're kind of just like half-assing it because they're hoping that on the other side of it, there's going to be a guaranteed job for them, whether they pass through it or not, which 
I, you can't go into an educational program with that sort of like lackadaisical sort of thing. I mean, college, I feel like is different maybe because it's spread out over more time. So you can go to college and like completely just like fuck off your freshman year and it's fine. Whereas yeah. you can't do that the first four weeks of a boot camp. Like you, that's ridiculous. No, that, and that's, that's what are like, you hit it on the head. Like it's like the, you've got to, you got to put the time into it. You got to put the effort into it. Like, I, I think of like, this is like super cliche of an example, but I think of individuals like Michael Jordan and how he, he put the time in, like he was there before practice. He was there after practice. Like he was learning how to shoot free throws. And like, if you want to be, if you were, so like, like there's a stigma in black culture around like, you know, playing sports and like the reason why so many black people like, sorry, this is painting broad strokes, but like the reason why <laughs> like so many black athletes are so good at it is because they spend the time like they're that's they have a ball in their hand they're like always in the court learning at whatever the drills are and like putting the time into it and then they become successful but like if you want to be like the next great michael jordan of code or michael jordan of like design like if you're not doing like constant work and constant trying things and you're not like rubbing shoulders against other people that are better than you then like you might as well don't even bother like yeah just take like a your take a different career path or whatever the michael jordan of code i don't even know what that would look like these days with so many different frameworks and such i just that was an interesting thought yeah well i mean so i i i do have an example and i'd okay. love people to uh i don't know if he's been on this podcast but kelsey hightower um i don't know if you've had a chance to watch any of his talks i i've i've seen some of his talks and i was gonna say that name sounds mad familiar once you said it yeah, yeah. So he's on the Google Cloud platform. He's a developer advocate too. He's like one of my like role models that I look up to. And he has a totally different presence on stage than I do. Like I'm there, I'm telling jokes, I'm teaching you about hip hop. He has no slides whatsoever. He goes up there with a blank terminal screen and his entire talk is is live demo. Mm. And you can't do that without a lot of practice. Like you have to know what you're talking about. You have to be prepared. Like if you see an error message that you never saw before because the API changed between the time you got on the plane and the time you started your talk, like, and you never got a chance to to know about that. Like you've got to be prepared for that. So like he's on stage, he's writing code, he's showing off like really cool backend heavy things. And then he'll get an error and he's like, Oh cool. Well, we'll figure this out. Let's debug this live. And then he goes like deep, like solves a problem, like right on stage yeah. uh, with complete composure. Like I can't do that. <laughs> like I'm not there as a, a developer. And it's mainly because like, quite frankly, I haven't put the time in, and knowing like my code base and knowing the API front to back like he does. And I, I I would put him in like the ranks of like the Michael Jordan, like the LeBron James. I know LeBron gets a lot of heat, but LeBron literally, like literally his his entire his game has changed from like 2003 when he when he first joined the NBA to today. Uh -huh. Like he wasn't he was not shooting shooting three pointers the way that he's shooting three pointers today. And I think because the game evolved and moved away from him, he learned how to adjust. And I think Michael Jordan, same thing. He adjusted up until like even like the, the dude, like he came back, like almost pushing 40, like came back and played again and uh, adjusted his game to compete with all the young guys. And I think as as engineers, like you got to be able to pull with the punches, like if something changes, if you decided you were going to learn JavaScript and everybody wants to learn C sharp, like you got to know C sharp, like go go learn it. And uh, I don't think a lot of the people who are coming in and they're going to the run the mill, like General Assembly, like. It was mentioned before, like, you've got to put the time. And General Assembly has a really good program if mm -hmm. you put the time into it. But I don't know if every, because General Assembly, I've, I've heard, I don't mean to knock it, but I've heard this quote from them. Like, they're the McDonald's of boot camps because they're, like, in every city. That's accurate. Yeah. So, like, you, you can't guarantee, like, though, the, like, McDonald's has a franchise and they have, like, a minimum viable operation standard. Yeah. Like, you're still going to have a bad experience at McDonald's. Like, <laughs> and then you just won't go back to McDonald's and that's like, that's, that's, or you won't go to that one. Like, you know, which mm -hmm. McDonald's to go to. Um, so I think it's the same thing with boot camps. You got to ask a lot of questions. You got to, you know, interview the teachers, interview the mentors and make sure you know what, like where in the industry you're going to fall up. Like you're going to land at the end of it. I'm going to have to reach out to Kelsey. Now that you mentioned him, uh, I'm going to reach out to him, see if I can get him to come on the show. He's the, the Michael Jordan or the LeBron James of code. I got to talk to him. 
Yeah, I mean, he has a really good story of like I'll I'll, I'll leave it for discovery of the listener as well as you getting up on here, but like <laughs> he's got some really good stories around uh, around his experience. So definitely, I, I highly recommend them. So, what do you think is the single most important skill that a developer? needs to possess these days and i'm not necessarily talking about a technical skill but like what do you think developers need to really have these days yeah so i mean i my my gut answer and like i i knew the answer before we even finished the sentence which is you need to learn how to learn and that's like it hands down like the industry like web development which is what i kind of focus in it changes every two years so two years ago what we were using today didn't exist and two years prior to that it didn't exist so imagine like 10 years ago and everybody's doing WordPress, like WordPress today is like now you have like frameworks, you have like, you don't, you don't even touch PHP anymore. Yeah. You have to know what the next thing is to be able to interact with it. So if you know how to learn, then you're you'll be you'll be fine. So and like I made a mention about that JavaScript, like if you learn JavaScript today, like you should know JavaScript enough that you can learn anything else. So if you need to learn Ruby or Python or, you know, um, C sharp, like you should know how like what are the basics of how to learn to learn your next thing. So I didn't mention this earlier, but I first heard about you, of course, from podcasting. You used to have this podcast that was called This Developing Story. Yeah. And it seems like This Developing Story has kind of uh, evolved a little bit. But I'm curious, why did you decide to start a podcast back then? For people who are listening to this show who have been listening for years and years and years, I, God, this may have been, what, 2014, 2015 when you were doing yep. This Developing Story, yep. I think? I was mentioning it on the show. I was mentioning it on Revision Path. Yeah, yeah, and like, so like, I've always had like, I, I'm I'm a sort of like a jack of all trades. I'm a serial hobbyist. I try to like try new things all the time. And as I mentioned earlier in the episode, where I had a Mac in my last semester of college, uh, I had that Mac because I was learning how to make music. Like the whole bedroom producer thing was like a huge craze when I was in college. Like mm-hmm. you. Get pro, pro tools, you get a mic, and then you're like, you're a rapper. <laughs> and though I wasn't really in the rapping, I was really into making beats, and I was really into like that whole music scene. So by the time I learned how to code and I had a career as a developer, I already had all these all these mics, all these keyboards, and everything like that. And I was already listening to podcasts for like ten, a good ten years into that, for pretty much the beginning of podcasting. So I had an, like a thought of like, I'm good at trying things out, and then finding out if like I can continue to do it. So I was going to try podcasting. And so at the time that I got my first developer job, I had the idea of doing a podcast and called This Developing Story. And at the time, I, I discovered This American Life as an existence of a podcast. And I liked the format, but I wasn't really there as a producer and editor to make it that happen like that. But what I would do is just like document my life, me as a developer. And that's what I started like 15 minutes of like, this is what happened this week. And this is what I learned type of deal. And also around this time, the startup podcast too as well. Like I, I I heard that podcast. So now it's like Gimlet Media, which has since been bought by Spotify. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like super like into that podcast when it first came out, like sort of like figuring out like the startup and like this guy figuring out how to make this work and like documenting your life. And at the time I was already doing blog I was already blogging about two to three times a week. So I just needed like another medium to share stuff that didn't fit in a blog post. Like that was like a little more personal and that would take a little more time to write out because like there's a lot of editing that happens and like writing is like not the best thing I could do, but like talking is something I do pretty easily, like hitting record and then shipping that to some server. Like I could do that easier than I could do sitting, writing a blog post. So I did that for a good year uh, while I was living in Orlando. And then it, it shifted into my experience in San Francisco as like a black engineer. And I would give a lot of insights on like this being sort of like the token engineer at the company at the time, including my employer had like super problems with the uh, diversity at their companies. So I was just like sort of documenting that documenting the, like the, the meetup scene, the conference scene in San Francisco and sort of how different it was as an engineer being in San Francisco. But then I, re- I sort of ran out of steam doing that. I, I got really busy at work. So instead of me just talking about myself every single week, uh, I would talk about myself. Plus I would bring on somebody and talk about, I'd ask them three questions, which is who are you? Um, what do you do and how did you get here? And I would just find people that I looked up to in the industry. Uh, and honestly, I kind of, at this time I, I found your podcast. So I sort of store, stole the style, but like, um, <laughs> I sort of just like limited it to something I could pitch really easily. Cause at the time I, I felt like a nobody, like no one really knew who I was. So I'd, I would cold email people and like cold tweet them and DM them on Twitter and stuff like that. Yeah. 
And like I had like a 90, 90% success rate on people saying yes. Wow. Because I like heard a story of someone was saying that like, I think it was Dan Benjamin for about a five by five. He was saying that people get like the same questions over and over again of like, hey, how'd you like, I get the question all the time. I'm like, hey, you know, what was it like doing this? Or what was it like doing that? Or how did you like find the time to like have a kid and learn how to code? And like the reason I, I wrote that in a blog post was that way. I can instead of answering that all the time in an email, I just be like, "Here's the link to the blog post." And with that same sort of mindset, I know people get the same question over and over again about like, "How did you become an engineer?" So if you could, if they could put that in a podcast form and record that and be like, "Hey, this is my story. Just listen to this," then they would love to do that. So like, I would just reach out to random people, and they would say yes, and then I would ask them the three questions. I'd keep it within 30 minutes, and I did that for 70 something episodes, which was a blast. And like some of the networks. And like the the jobs I've gotten since have been literally from this podcast. And I grew my network in San Francisco of like knowing nobody to now knowing every time I walk into a room of developers, like I, I can guarantee I at least know like four or five of them. And it's like, this is like the sort of like where I started. And like, it seems like this developing story kind of evolved into what you're doing now with Jamstack Radio. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I was doing this developing story. So I joined Netlify. Like crazy enough, I, I went to a meetup, saw someone, I uh, saw the CEO pitch Netlify from stage at an Ember meetup. And it was like the, it was like the month that they actually launched as a product. And at the time, there was a company called DivShot where I was hosting all my websites on. So all my JavaScript sites were hosted on DivShot. They actually got bought by Firebase, which is now Firebase Deploy. So like DivShot became Firebase uh, deploy and they were bought by Google. So like, anyway, they they said that they were going to shut down everybody's sites and you had to move somewhere else. And that same month that that happened, I found Netlify. So I moved all my stuff to Netlify. And then a year of doing the same disk developing story and as well as my blog for a year, um, they reached out to me directly and said, hey, we kind of like what you're doing like with the blogging and the podcasting thing. Also, all the code you're writing is ex- exactly what we're hiring. So would you like to come work for us? Hmm. And like literally that was it. Like I had like kind of an interview but it wasn't really an interview. It was kind of like, hey, can you just make this this feature and we'll see if it's good. We'll kick the tires on it and then like, here you go. Here's a job. So that, that was my experience and it's because I put myself out there. Yeah. The second week I was at Netlify, actually the first week I was at Netlify, one of the people who was like, because it was I was employee like four at Netlify, there was like one guy who was doing content marketing as well as everything that wasn't code. He basically pitched me. He's like, hey, you already do a podcast. Like, do you want to re- record a podcast uh, with this company? that is pitching us to do a podcast. So do you have any experience? And that was Jamstack Radio. And I was like, oh, sure, let's do it. Mm. So I basically took that same concept of uh, what I was doing, just developing story, but I had like a very specific topic, which was JavaScript APIs and markup, which is the jam, oh. and talked about front-end web development. Uh, so I've been doing that for quite, a, I guess I'm at 40, episode 45, I just recorded yesterday. So nice. yeah, I've been doing that pretty strong. And because my, my role at LFI got pretty intense of like, I was shipping code as well as I was doing de- developer advocacy as well as I was doing a podcast for them. I ended up shutting down. Well, I never officially shut down this developing story because I always wanted to like still have it to bring it back. Mm-hmm. But I haven't I haven't sent sorry published an episode in uh, almost three years now. The story is still developing. It is, and honestly, <laughs> I, I've recorded I've recorded like a uh, hey it's, I'm sorry I haven't recorded an episode pot like episode like sort of like hey i know this it's been a while since this podcast has had an episode type of deal yeah but then i always feel like disingenuous because like i i ended up deleting it because i'm like oh you know i'm just gonna keep this open-ended because i never know like if i'm gonna like maybe i'll leave github or i want something else or i do my own side project like that platform is something that i would i'd always want to keep open open-ended nice that's funny that well not funny but i will say it's good that you had such a high success rate with reaching out to people like that was not the case for me. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I got, I guess I got lucky. Maybe, maybe because I, I don't know. I just had like a, a canned email, and I guess when I go on Twitter, I'd reach out to people who like were kind of known but not super known. Mm-hmm. And I think like a lot of the, a lot of your guests on the podcast are like this too as well. But I guess I was just, I don't know. Maybe, maybe developers just feel like they don't get enough attention, um, so they would say yes. But not really sure what what was the success why the success i mean that's not a bad thing i mean that's that's actually really good yeah i know i would reach out to people and who are you what is this i've never heard of this like my success rate is like I would, i'll be honest with you my success rate now is even still not that great it's about 20 mm, percent, maybe really it's not that great yeah yeah it's not that great i i honestly think part of it is because uh gmail is a hater and it keeps sending my messages to spam. That's what I really think it is. Like if I had to 
if I had to blame something, I think that's what it is. Cause I'll, cause I've emailed so many people from the same email address for six years and it's not like another Gmail account or whatever. And I think because so many people that I end up messaging have a Gmail account, then Gmail now thinks that this domain is like spam or something. I'm guessing that's what it is. I don't really know, but it's not as easy as I would like for it to be most times. Most months I'm still like hunting down guests. Like you want to come on the show? You want to come talk to me? That sort of thing. So yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure I, I'll give it a little call out. I don't know. Targeted advertising. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I feel like you, you're, the show is really filled in a really good niche. Cause like I, I am no by no means a designer. I know this show really started off as being like black designers. Yeah. And I had not, I didn't know that there could be a niche of black anything, at least in tech or anything like tangential. So like when I found there was a list of designers that were black and I could learn about their stories and like my story is like, I didn't know, like honestly growing up in Florida, like HBCUs, like the only one I knew of was FAMU. Yeah. And I, I would have went there, but I ended up getting a, a school close to home that I didn't have to pay for a room and board on. Mm-hmm. But like, I, I've learned so much about black culture from the show and like black design. And like, we haven't really touched on like more of my day job, but like I lead an ERG at GitHub. We call ourselves the Black the Cats. Nice. And we, we recently just had a uh, event where we were specifically targeting black engineers in college. So we targeted like the... Um, Omega Phi Psi, which is the the black fraternity. Yeah. And we had the in coordination of like Morehouse and the other schools in Spelman had an event where we taught people how to do open source um, as GitHub employees and as the black ERG at GitHub. And like the amount of like, I don't know, I, I'll, I'll find that in like a couple years. I, I feel like we've, we touched people, we've changed lives, we've changed trajectory of like CS degree students who thought that they could just get a CS degree from HBCU and like be okay at the other, other than it. Like, we sort of expose them to the world of GitHub and open source and like connecting and networking, like outside the idea of internships. And like, I really enjoyed that. And uh, I, I really look forward to it influencing the culture that I come from even more heavily with the, like the under the, the, I guess the umbrella of, of GitHub. So I'm super proud to be a part of that organization and sort of grow that in the future. Nice. Well, hey, if uh, you ever want to have a somewhat design developer podcast out there, let me know. I'll do it. It's not a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, actually, I didn't even mention too because you're based in Atlanta too. Yeah, yeah. We hosted this in Atlanta, uh, in Decatur County, and we had like some um, uh, politicians too, like state representatives, come through, and they're like, hmm. they were impressed at how technical the event was. Because uh, they they were expecting like oh we're just gonna get around and talk about ideas yeah and whoever has the best idea that's wins a hackathon but no we actually had people writing code and contributing the code bases the entire time so that that event we we didn't publicize this because we um we were targeting specifically the black community and like GitHub is not a hundred percent black user base so like we we wanted to make sure the people who were there were the right people mm-hmm. but we called this a uh, floss and code floss and, code. and uh, the word floss as an acronym for free license open source software. That is um, so that is so nerdy. <laughs> I like it, but it's very dirty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. But I mean, that's that's the demographic we're going after. So trying to get black people who want to do open source. Nice, nice. Well, you know, just to kind of wrap things up here, Brian, where can our audience find out more about you and your work and everything online? Yeah, so I'm I'm pretty active on Twitter. I'm uh, bdougieyo on Twitter. So that's B-D-O-U-G-I-E-Y-O on Twitter. That's usually like the central place uh, we can find the stuff I'm doing. Um, speaking at some conferences in Barcelona at Full Stack Fest coming up pretty soon, uh, as well as here in Oakland at Bay City Ruby. Uh, and also I got a, a website, Brian Douglas at me, that I'm hoping to um, kind of refresh it hopefully pretty soon. It's been similar to the disk developing story. I stopped writing blog posts on there at the same time mm-hmm. uh, just because I got so busy. But I've actually got a blog post I already wrote that I'll be publishing in the next few weeks on there to sort of revive that. And who knows, maybe that podcast will come back um, if I find the time. Nice. Yeah, well, Brian Douglas, I want to thank you just so much for coming on the show. I mean, as I mentioned before, I knew about your story, I think a little bit just from listening to the podcast. But Really, as you talked about growing up in Florida, you know, even the challenges that you were having in terms of uh, your family and then learning code and all of this. I mean, I feel like people really want to know about the story behind the 
the personality or like the story behind the developer? Because so many times, especially for us being, you know, black people in this industry, these aspirational stories end up being held so much as like possibility models in a way. It's like, oh, yeah, be like this person. But then you don't really know like the story of how they got there and why it's so important to them and things like that. So I think it's really great to talk about this and to explore this. And your developer story is still being developed. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thoughts of love are in your mind. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Brian Douglas and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Brian and his work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash revision path. Revision path is a glitch media network podcast and is produced by Maurice Cherry and edited by Brittany Brown. Our intro voiceover is by music man Dre with intro and outro music by yellow speaker. We're also powered by Simplecast, which is the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Make sure you check out the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. And if you like this episode, then please let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes about a minute or so to do, but it really helps spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.